0: book, and I found myself in my preparations, I was asking the Lord specifically to help me uh, with an anointing from His Spirit to be able to give word to the weight that is revealed in this chapter. It's the last vision, the first part of the chapter is the last of the eight night visions that Zechariah received in a, seemed like a very sleepless night, and the second half of this chapter is an oracle, an explanation, I think not just of the final vision, but all the visions. Put together. So if you would, uh, in your Bibles, follow along as I read. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel answered and said to me these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the lord of all the earth the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country the white ones go after them and the dappled ones go toward the south country when the strong horses came out they were impatient to go and patrol the earth and he said go patrol the earth so they patrolled the earth then he cried to me behold those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Helday, Tobiah, and Jedeah, who have arrived from Babylon and go to, the same, go to the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown. And set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest and say to him thus says the lord of hosts behold the man whose name is the branch for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the lord it shall it is he who shall build the temple of the lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem, Tobiah, Judea, and the hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Lord, we ask for understanding, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would communicate and illuminate and give us understanding. Jesus' name, we pray, Amen. You know we don't we don't think about life under a monarchy in our country, and really over the course of this uh, the 20th century, monarchies really went by the wayside, especially after World War One. And I don't know if you uh, follow pop news a little bit, but this week Prince Harry and his wife Meghan have. Uh, resigned their royal duties which means they're leaving the royal family and their desire is to become financially independent from the royal family we all think why on earth are you doing that you got all the money that you ever would ever want what is going on and when they've asked they want to this uh, they want to show that the royal family family can be progressive and it doesn't have to be Uh, known by the, the, the rigidity and the routine and the high expectations for that authority. But ultimately, what Harry and Meghan are doing is bringing to the royal family what culture has been doing for a long time, for a couple generations at least. Culture, Western culture, is typically saying we need to get out from authority because authority is oppressive to us. And when we get out of that authority, we'll be finally free to express ourselves. Harry and Meghan are doing that in a context of a royal family in England. But we know that the royal family is more of a figurehead thing. There's still authority, but it's not quite like it was. After World War I, the Hempstead Empire went away. The Ottoman Empire went away. All of these kings, sultans, czars, kaisers, all of them... We stopped hearing about them, stop reading about them in history books when we follow along. But in this context, when, when God is speaking to his people, they long for a king. They long for somebody because they, they want a king because they know their national identity depends on that king. Really, it was threefold. It depended on the prophet, the priest, and the king. But during the exile, the priests and the kings went away, prophets. You had Ezekiel that was still prophesying during the exile. But you have two very important positions of authority and and national identity that are gone. They're wiped away. And so Israel, when they hear, remember chapter 4 when Zerubbabel is crowned? They're thinking, this is great. A king is going to be crowned for us to give us our identity back. But something interesting is happening with God in all of these visions and what he's revealing. He's telling them, look, all of these things that are symbols, they were looking at as their national identity. The temple being there was, that made them who they were as a nation. And when the temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, they lost their identity. And God is systematically rebuilding their identity, not in those symbols... Not in the temple, or the king, or the priest, even though he's saying they still have roles. Because all of that is coming to point to one person. All of the symbols point to the Messiah that would come. The new, divine king. The branch. The one that would be the king forever. Now interestingly, when when Zerubbabel is crowned in chapter 4 of Zechariah that we looked at, Israel never had a king on this earth again. Even during the time when Jesus walked the earth, he had the the Herod dynasty that was ruling. Herod wasn't a Jew. He was just given permission by the Romans to rule over that. So they longed. That's why people were following Jesus saying, you're the king? All right, let's get an army. i got swords. we got like three spears over there. Let's do this. Jesus said, that's not the kingdom I'm building. And we look at this, this last vision tells us of the type of kingdom and the one who would come and the the oracle describes the kingdom that will now be built it's a spiritual kingdom it's not a kingdom for this earth and listen every one of us believer we we are longing for that kingship If we're unbelievers, we're longing for that kingship too because we think, we're told by growing up, we can be anything we want, we can do anything we want, we're the ultimate authority over our lives, and so we start making decisions, but ultimately we recognize that doesn't satisfy us, it doesn't fulfill us because we're made to be under the authority of another. So in our relationships, there's a lot of tension when that authority gets all weirded out, but ultimately we're made to be under the authority of Jesus, our king. And there's a restlessness that goes on in us when we're, when we're not submitted to him, when we're trying to rule ourselves, and he's coming in where we don't want his rule, but then he works on our hearts in a particular way to where we give ourselves to him. We, we trust him in faith, and then we place ourselves under his authority. And what happens? The king that is crowned here is crowned over our hearts and gives us new life resurrection life that we're able to experience and affect and touch everything about our lives is different, not easy, but different because of his glory. If you look at that main point in your notes of this this sermon, the night visions given to Zechariah point to a new divine king that will wear a new crown and build a new temple. The hope of God's people is now in a future Messiah who will collect his people and establish them in his kingdom forever. This was a huge hope-sowing uh, display through Zechariah to the people. They're like, all right, we have hope now. But that same hope is sown in us when we recognize Jesus. When, I, when you are rightly enthroned over my heart, life is good. My relationship with you is good. I experience your glory, your presence, your love. I experience those things. I don't have, to, I don't have that restlessness anymore. I can be satisfied and still in your presence and we have hope we have hope not just that his presence is with us now but we also have the hope that one day jesus will the the king of all glory the king of all kings he will return and he will bring his people into his eternal glory his eternal kingdom in the first uh, part of this chapter the first paragraph i think we see with the this chariots and horses that are going out i think we see a kingdom advancement described it's a kingdom advancement, one through judgment, but also through through the spirit's activity. And now that Jesus is crowned as king, we see a spiritual activity portrayed and foreshadowed. <clears throat> now this, these chariots and horses, uh, the last vision that Zechariah receives, and we see first that they're coming, <coughs> excuse me, they are, they're coming from between two bronze mountains. Now given that the the other visions that Zechariah received occurred in Jerusalem. We, we might be able to say they are Mount Zion, which is the temple mount, Mount Moriah, where the temple was ultimately built. And then you have, it goes down, you have the Kidron Valley, and then the Mount of Olives on the other side. So it could represent those mountains as if there's, a, there's chariots coming through uh, these two mountains, and like it was, it's a gate of some sort, and they're coming through. But the bronze uh, we see, and, and, and when we look at these scriptures, any scripture, you know, scripture is its own best interpreter. So when we're puzzled, what does this mean? The best thing to do is look in the other parts of scripture that involve these things and try to find out and gain an understanding of what God might be trying to communicate. When we think about the temple itself, remember, what God has done, this is all of these visions are about rebuilding the temple and establishing God's people in his presence and his presence for them, but ultimately not, as, not them around his presence, but his presence inside of them. And he would rule over them as king and priest and prophet. But we have, we have these, uh, this temple, and even looking at the, the flying scrolls, uh, last week, that we're going. I remember they had the dimensions of the holy place right before the Holy of Holies. That, that everything, God's presence in the Holy of Holies, it's above the Ark of the, the Covenant. It's, His glory is there. There's a thick veil there because of our sinfulness. We're, we're veiled from experiencing His presence fully. But all of these visions are about His presence going out. And so that flying scroll, the dimensions that were there, remember there's the altar of incense and the and right before the veil, and as you go out, there's the table, the lampstand, the table of showbread, and you go out, all of these things, these are, remember, Jesus said all these things, but all of these things in the presence of the life of the believer, when the, when God's presence goes out, we begin to experience his light, eat of his life in his bread, when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, prayer, our experience of the presence of God, all of that becomes now internal, And so if you think about what God's doing in his presence going out, when it leaves the door, see everybody, it's always like going outside in when you look at things, but God's perspective, he's going out, and he passes the front door, and on either side of the temple are these huge pillars cast in bronze. And Solomon put those pillars up and he named one Yachin and the other Boaz. Yachan meaning he establishes, and Boaz meaning strength. So just as those bronze pillars stood at the door of the temple, these bronze mountains I think represent the gate of heaven. The gate of God's work that he establishes his strength and accomplishes his will. Then through these mountains come chariots and horses. Four chariots led by different colored horses. It's a reminder, remember they had the horses from chapter one that were uh, patrolling the earth. There's the presence of the chariots and the horses is a kingdom matter. These are, these are God's stormtroopers. Now, stormtroopers, I don't know if you're like me. I watch Star Wars. I, I'm a big Star Wars fan. But every time I see the stormtroopers, I, I just think, y'all are dumb. You're just a bunch of dunces. Like who, who in the galaxy goes to find these guys? You need a better recruiter because you can't shoot straight. You never shoot the good guys. They're just there and they just bounce back. Don't think those stormtroopers. These are, think like horses that are breathing heavy, chariots representing the mission of God's army to accomplish his purpose on the earth. This is a, it's a huge, and we're supposed to feel the chariots and the horses coming out. The horses in chapter 1 were red, black, and white, with the exception of one. It's the same as these. Remember in chapter 1 we had sorrel brown horses, but now they're dappled, which are multicolored horses. And we're told all of them are strong. It's It's an emphasis to feel that. And the mission of the chariots and the horses is given to Zechariah as going out to the four winds. After presenting themselves before God. He says, go patrol. Go patrol and they go out. I think their mission is twofold. I think it represents a, a component of present hope to the, to the original hearers. But ultimate hope to everybody, including us, that would come and read this passage. I think the first uh, part of their mission is judgment on Israel's adversaries. And I think the second part is about the conviction, the activity of God's spirit to bring about light and understanding of the king of kings. So there, let me explain the first one. A straight reading of this text tells us that the black horses went north and the white horses followed. So we're thinking, okay, they followed north. We're told then that the dappled horses go south. There's no east and west. I think this would have communicated a hope to Israel because north represented Babylon, represented Assyria, the ones Assyria came and conquered Israel and Samaria uh, a, a, about a, a little over 100 years before then Babylon comes in and they, they destroyed Judah, which is the southern kingdom of God's people. So I think it represents ultimately God will judge those nation, nations who have, have come and ravaged. And the south was always Egypt. Egypt was always fickle. Most of the time they were looking to use Israel for their own gain. All the way back from the time that they were slaves in Egypt. The south represented the the Egypt and the on and off again weird relationship. Sometimes they were friendly, but ultimately Pharaoh Nico killed one of the last kings of Judah. So they were always looking and God is communicating and that the horses we can look also in Romans or not Romans, Revelation six, the horses are, are these same colored horses, one of them not dappled but pale bring the seven seals, the first four of the seven seals that the angel opens up. So they're bringing judgment. It's helpful, judgment on on God's, on the adversaries of God's people. Now, just a, a point for us to recognize, even, you know, this side of the cross. It's helpful for us to to know that God will not let evil and wickedness have the last word. He will have the last word on all He brings his judgment on every action, period. Now, our response to that is that we don't, as believers, we don't wish judgment on people. That would be wrong. We need to, we need to ask for mercy for those who have wronged us, but it's wrong one to wish judgment,, you're going to get your due. Or to try to manipulate our vindication or punish somebody because we feel wrong by them. That's God's role. God is the avenger. He's the one that will bring that vengeance. We're not called to do that. What are we called to do? Serve. Jesus said, if your enemy hits you, give them the other cheek. And uh, if persecutors, bring it, if they're thirsty, give them a cup of water. Serve them. Romans picks up the same thing. Paul in Romans 12, 20, he says, you'll heap burning coals upon their head. This is the phrase we know, kill them with kindness. Why does that work? Why does serving somebody work? Because in serving somebody when they're angry and possibly angry and you know they, the adversarial relationship when you serve, it's God that's reminding them of coming judgment, not you. And God uses all of that to remind everybody that he is God, we're not. But then we're told that these, these four go to the four winds. Now some commentators would look at this perspective and say that the chariot really represented the four winds. But they went in every direction. So if you think about the black went north, the white followed, so they think the followed to the west. Then the dappled to the south, but there's no mention of the red. And it could be that just through transcription, that part got lost when they were copying everything. So, or it was just assumed the red went east. So all the four winds, the four points of the compass that they're going. The absence of the the direction of the red uh, would not would not cause. A, it's not it's not a critical component. I think that would represent. The first reading that it would be no, it's simply north and south were the directions that they went. I do think they went to the all all four to represent all four directions to represent the spirit's activity in Him, bringing awareness of Jesus to the world. Now, when we think of the use of the word wind in scriptures, it reflects the activity of God's Spirit to bring about His will. The Old Testament word for spirit is wind. Actually, both New Testament Hebrew and Greek, both of them are wind, a breath. In Psalm 104, we see he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters and he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds. His ministers a flaming fire. Now think about when Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, he likens the spirit's activity to the wind. John 3 verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I think the vision of the four chariots and their horses indicates the ministry of the Spirit. Executing the mission of gospel advancement. I think the force, the strength, the impatience, the eagerness of this patrol is the Spirit's activity to bring awareness to the world of gospel life. And Jesus told this to his disciples In John 16, 8, that the Spirit's role when he was given was to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Part of the Spirit's activity today in the world is to convince everybody, everybody breathing. We stand under the judgment of God until we repent. And he pleads for us to repent. He uses us to do that. The vision of these four chariots carried by their horses indeed is bringing both judgment and conviction. They execute the mission of God for his son, and they set his spirit at rest. <coughs> there's, a, there's a final judgment that comes where God says, I'm done judging. And we know as we look at scriptures that that final judgment for the entire world is hell. Church, hell is very real, and hell is eternal. God gives renewed beings, bodies, to endure eternal torment, to prove his righteousness. And that should break our hearts because we know people who are standing, rebelling against God, and we know that's their destiny until they repent. So we, we want to participate in bringing God's ministry of reconciliation and being ambassadors for him. The activity of God's judgment, uh, activity of judgment for God's people is that so he, one day Jesus, brings together, he gathers. while, While there's an end to all things, there's a gathering, an ingathering for an eternal kingdom under an eternal king. Now in verses 9 through 11, we have this now explanation that's coming. It's a crown and a temple that are being told the word that came to Zechariah. Uh, I think, like I said before, is it, it encapsulates all the visions together, all eight. Because it's all pointing to one person. And we're told again that it's the branch. There will be a crown for this king, this branch. Three distinct things I think we see that stand out about the crown. One is that it's taken from exiles. These guys who are listed, Helday, Tobiah, and Judea... They had just returned, maybe they led a group of people, maybe they just came of themselves. They have come back from Babylon and they're there with the returned exiles to try to rebuild and restore what God is doing. Maybe they brought, because now they're told to take silver and gold from them, so there's two types of metal to the crown. Possibly they brought an offering. Maybe these were vessels that were in the original temple that they brought back. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar had all of the the gold and silver instruments that were used in the temple. They brought them all to Babylon. Maybe they brought those back. But either way, it was an offering perhaps. It was something. But it represents that they're taken from exiles. I think the crown that the king will wear represents a rescue from captivity. Because these were exiles that came back. They were in captivity and came out. And there's two metals, silver and gold. Crowns were typically cast from gold. They didn't have two metals. And when you melt silver and gold down, it, it becomes a different alloy. So I, I think because of this, I think we see a double crown. And it was probably a crown that was woven of silver and gold. To, to be able to see both of them represented. And it was taken to Josiah, who was probably uh, a metal worker. And then there was a shock that came about this crown. In verse 11, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadok, the high priest. This would have been a shock to Zechariah. This would have been a shock to every original reader because they said, wait a minute, the priest and the king, they don't mix like that. Because they all knew about Uriah who was the king who tried to do the duty of a priest and was riddled with leprosy till the day of his death. God judged him and said, you don't cross over like that. I think God was preserving this because that crossover would only be in one man and nobody else could be that man. This was a new crown for a new king. And Joshua represents this new king as a priest who was also a king. No longer would God's people need a high priest as well as a king. It would be one man accomplishing both tasks. And connecting the crowning of Joshua to the branch meant that this new king would be a divine king to reign over the throne forever. It's ultimately what God promised to David when he promised the kingship to him and that he would have a son to be on the throne for all eternity, 2 Samuel verse uh, chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We saw the very next son, the, the very next king, Solomon, David's son, who built the physical kingdom. But there's also a, a forever kingdom that God's promising to David. And we know that Jesus, that branch, is from the line of David. It also supersedes, just like Melchizedek in Hebrews From Genesis, it was told he was a priest not of the same order as the Levitical priesthood because he came before. He superseded them. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus is even better than Melchizedek. His priestly reign is an eternal priestly reign. His kingship is an eternal kingship. And it all points to the branch, this divine king. In verses 12 through 15, we see Joshua's crowning. As a visual symbol of the coming king that would be the Messiah himself, the Anointed One from God to deliver His people. Remember Isaiah eleven one: There shall come forth from uh, come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In Jeremiah twenty three: Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for a David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Both of these point to that forever king that would come from David's line. And we read in Zechariah 3, that the branch would be a priest like Joshua. Now we see that God's pointing to this priest king. Jesus ultimately has the role of prophet, priest, and king. But three words in verse 12 stand out and point to who this would be and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man. God has given understanding of where this man would come from. It would be a man way back in Genesis chapter 3 with the promise of the offspring to Eve. We had the pronoun he used there. We see him again in the promise to Abraham that his seed would bless nations again in Moses who was not an ordinary baby and deliver and he became the deliverer of God's people from their captivity. He's the servant in Isaiah 53 to bear the reproach of God's people. He's the one whom John the Baptist announced, Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who was crowned, not with woven silver and gold, he was crowned with woven thorns, who Pilate then put before the people and said, Behold, the man. That's the man. Behold, the man on the cross, clothed in shame, crowned with thorns. Church, he is our king. And we can rejoice that he's our king because we understand that the the thorns and the shame and the bloodiness and the, the cross itself represents a kingship that comes into our hearts and lasts for all eternity. It's not a king that we define. It's not a king with all the glamour and the royalty that we ascend to. It's a king that has descended to us and become one of us to bear our shame to bear our punishment, to be crowned with the thorns that we all wear when we try to take God's crown off of himself and put it on us. That's why life is so hard. He is our king. He is the wounded victor that we see all the way in Genesis chapter 3, and he rules forever when we promise in Revelation, he is our king, and he loves us, and we serve him, and he rules over our hearts. Amen? Amen. He rules over us, and we give ourselves to him every day because he's worthy. He's worthy of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. He is the one who Daniel saw as the son of man, being given in glory. To him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What a promise to a people. Remember, Daniel sees that in exile. What a promise for a hope that a temple can be built that will never be destroyed. But let's talk about what that temple is because Jesus builds a temple. The Messiah, the branch, builds a temple. The future divine king builds another temple with its roots in Jerusalem, but it branches out. Physical temple was always the sign of another one to come. And it pointed to the heavenly temple with God's presence there shining bright all day, all night. When the physical temple gave Israel a national identity as God's people, it's because God's presence dwelled there. That was not the final temple. The temple represents the dwelling of God. And Jesus is building a different temple with a dwelling that comes where? Inside of us. He first points to himself as the temple. Why? Because he was the embodiment of God's presence. In John chapter 2, after he goes and and he drives out the the money changers and the people who sold the sacrifices in the temple, he said, you've made my house a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, meaning it's supposed to be a place to experience God's presence. And you've destroyed that. You've marred that. You've created all these obstacles for people to try to experience my presence. And they get mad at him. Who... Who are you? This is the temple. And he told them, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And his disciples understood later that he was talking about himself because he didn't point to himself at that moment. He will raise that temple because he sends his spirit inside of everyone who believes him. Ephesians 1, we're told by the, the, the apostle Paul, We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit upon the day of our salvation. And 2 Corinthians 3 tells them, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 1 Peter 2, you yourselves... Like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are his temple. So when Jesus is that temple, and we, we celebrate this in communion, when he breaks the bread and has everybody eat, we are all collected together as the body of Christ. We are collected together as the temple of God. No longer do we, oh, oh, what? Do you imagine what Old Testament believers would, when they look at our lives, Like, are you kidding me? You get God's presence in you? We had to go to it all the time. We have his presence in us. When we put these things together with the promise in Zechariah, the mission of the Messiah is to go out from Jerusalem and to affect the world. In every direction. Remember, Jesus promises uh, when his spirit does come upon his disciples, he said, you'll be my witnesses. And he gives them the location, geography, start in Jerusalem and branch out to the entire world. Jesus is going, building a dwelling in the hearts of his people. Once Jesus' work of redemption was accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, he is now king. He's crowned as king to reign forever In the hearts of his people. And our response to him is. Here I am Lord. Send me. Obedience. That's what those last couple verses are talking about. Or, or, Sorry verse 15. Those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. You shall know the Lord host has sent me to you. If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Jesus is building a new temple and he is gathering nations to build that temple. uh, Revelation 7, we read, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. God's glory, I think this this is what the dappled horses represent, the multicolored horses. Remember, you've got uh, black and white as sin and righteousness, and red as the work of God judging us, uh, judging Jesus, so He doesn't judge us. And you had the sorrel horses in chapter one. That's go out. It's the message of. Jesus' death on the cross, a brown horse representing the cross, but now we have dappled, multicolored. The activity of God's spirit going and gathering all the nations, all the multicolored people that are going to be in heaven with him singing the praises of the lamb alongside of us. That's why we live obeying the, the great commission of Jesus. Our obedience is required for two reasons. One, we shine with Jesus' life and love as we become more like him every day. It's the the big word, sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more and more like Jesus every day in our actual lives. That's required because once we experience that, we experience God's love and life by becoming more like Jesus, but then twofold, we are also reflections of that glory walking around. So it's not just one Messiah that's walking around. We are then pictures of that Messiah, reflections of that Messiah all over the world. That's, that's the Spirit's four winds. We are His ministers. We are those that are beset aflame. I just saw, I think this past week, Marked the anniversary of Jim Elliott and his four friends that died in 1959 in Ecuador trying to bring the gospel to a a, a tribe that the government didn't even want to communicate with because they were afraid of their lives. And Jim Elliott said he, he quoted Psalm 104 in his devotion and he said you make your ministers flames of fire. And he prayed God Free me from the the dead asbestos of other things so I can burn brightly for you. And we we consume our lives with other things. The tyranny of the urgent or things that we think are going to bring us satisfaction and glory in this life rather than looking to the life to come as where our investment should be. He wants us to be that light In the world, and he wants it to come through our becoming more and more like Jesus every day. When we obey, we secure another two things happen. One, we secure our experience of God's love and his presence through our obedience. When we obey, we're happier. Think about it that way. And also, when we obey, we have some confidence that we really are saved. Like we can have confidence, all right. think God's spirit is alive in me because I am obeying. Because those born of God don't continue in a pattern of sin over and over and over again. There needs to be freedom and victory that we're experiencing in our lives. We obey to experience God. Now, culture knows what it's like to live without a king. God's people should never ever desire to live without a king. We have a king and now we need to live for that king. The king is crowned, and the king will return for his own to bring them to an eternal temple that he is still working on. John 14 says, "Let Jesus told his disciples, it, this is the, it's the teaching when he's explaining the spirit that he's going to give them. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What hope, church? This doesn't mean give up and just wait around for Jesus. No, this means obey, looking for that day that he looking for that day that he will have that in gathering and bring us all to his throne and 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 the scripture says that he will take a crown and he'll put it on our heads as he's wearing this woven silver and gold crown and we'll take that crown off and throw it at his feet because he's worthy, and he'll take it up and put it in right back on our heads. And just like a child who says again and again and again, we won't have all these other experiences that distract us from the pure joy of being before his presence and being before his throne and delighting in him and just looking at him and saying, Jesus, I'm with you. That's not all we'll do in heaven. We'll do stuff, it's gonna be really, really fun teenagers, we're just going to worship, I heard, we're just going to worship, heaven is just going to be worship all the time, and I thought, man, 10,000 years of worship, there's some worship times I just don't like, like, can I sit down at least, I mean, I'm just tired, now we'll do other things, because we'll still, we'll still work to cultivate and create in heaven, just like we do here, we'll still be doing those things for all eternity, we will rule with Jesus as his co-heirs. Crazy? Why? Because he loves us and he fought the greatest battle that we could never win. And he won it so he could be king over our hearts. There's reason to rejoice, church. There's reason to continue to rejoice and, and have that lift our heads to where we say, God, you're worthy. I'm yours. I'm yours. Let's stand Celebrate its own.